is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. What's the big deal about the Colorado River? We'll go in-depth. Governor Newsom's latest fight with Florida involves school books. And women of a certain age could soon get to work in menopause-friendly environments. No comment. We'll explain. We start with this new deal regarding water cuts from the Colorado River. Felicia Marcus is with Stanford University's Water in the West program. She's also the uh, former chair of the California Water uh, State Water Resources Control Board that was under uh, Governor Brown. How you doing? Oh, well, thanks a lot. How about you? Eh, not not bad. You know, how's your weekend? Oh, it was good. I've sort of been doing a lot of going back to school conferences, so my head's about to explode, but it's all right. <laughs> I know the feeling. Uh, so this whole uh, agreement that was reached among the states at the urging, of course, of the feds, how big a deal is it since it only goes to, what, 2026? Well, it's a big deal breakthrough for a number of reasons. One is we got to make it to 2026. And, you know, we've been watching the Colorado River go down for 23 years with some interim agreements that weren't enough to forestall the sort of edge of death we were on in terms of not being able to generate hydropower and potentially going to Deadpool. So the the rain and snow we got was a a good reprieve of six six months to a year, but uh, a deal that'll get us through the next three years allows us to focus on the really big decisions that need to be made on the Colorado. So we actually start living within our means. So it's a it's a ramp to a much bigger deal, but better to spend the three years on the big deal than to be haggling here uh, on the on the precipice of doom. You mentioned all the rain and the snow that uh, California got. Would this deal have come about if we had not gotten that rain? That's an interesting, that's actually a really good question. I think we would have had to get to some kind of deal. I think the cuts may have been so draconian then that you would have ended up with a bunch of litigation. So I think um, I think they they actually help people calm down a bit because I think the interior, uh, the federal government, understandably, were asking for cuts about uh, a, a lot bigger than this Um before, and that might have been a bridge too far. So I think it helped get to a deal. You know, perhaps understandably, we do tend to be somewhat U.S.-centric when we have these discussions about the Colorado River and and water Mm -hmm. rights. But Mexico gets water from the Colorado River as well, right? So how does this deal affect Mexico? Well, I think that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer because it wasn't in any of the press releases or documents that I saw this morning as I was catching up with what went on. Uh, U.S. though, um, U.S.-Mexico deals are handled differently. They're through international agreements called minutes. So my guess is that there's uh, been a lot of negotiating going on behind the scenes, and we'll hear more about that later. Um, Did we just put things off, though? Is there something inevitable about with the uh, climate changing? We're going to be here again in a few years, aren't we? Well, absolutely. And so the goal is to spend the next three years being ready to make the much bigger changes in operations that are going to be essential to deal with a future that we know is going to have more frequent and drier dries and where we probably will never refill these massive reservoirs. Because surely we're going to get uh, snow a palooza you know, years like we got last year, but we're going to have far more drought years. And so I think it's time, you know, our hundred year agreement is up. It's time to reset the the rules of the game. And there's a lot more moving parts to that than there are 
to what they needed to do to get through the next three years within the confines of the agreement that's about to expire, but still in effect. So it's a whole different ballgame for 2026, and that's going to take a while. Are you optimistic that states will be able to come up with some sort of, if not final, more long-range plan? Because after all, they didn't do such a hot job the past few months. Well, I think, you know, they, they did okay on some interim agreements that forestalled this day for six or seven years. So they certainly have the capacity, but they have the capacity only if the federal government steps in to play that 800-pound gorilla role of saying, hey, if you guys won't do it, we will because someone has to. And I think that really helped, uh, really helped this time. But I'm sure the federal government breathed a sigh of relief when the three states came to them. You know, people will argue that this isn't enough, that we should cut back more right now. But I really think creating an atmosphere in which all the states realize that they've got to hang together or all hang separately, so to to speak, to face a common foe is something that's both uh, politics, but it's also an art and a science. So there's a lot of personal diplomacy that needs to take place among the leadership in those states, in the big water agencies, and at the federal level. And I I just, one of the conferences I spent three days at was a Colorado River conference, and the tone was um, definitely different and more positive than it was at the end of January when all the fighting words came out. So I I see some progress, but uh, I don't underestimate how heavy the lift is going to be going forward. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Felicia Marcus. uh, used to be the chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board under Governor Brown. Governor Newsom has sent a letter to Florida. He's demanding to find out if any book publishers that make books for school in California had changed them to fit with Florida's new curriculum demands. Tyrone Howard is an education professor. He's also director of the UCLA Pritzker Center for Strengthening Children and Families. Tyrone, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So tell us briefly why this is important. Why would the governor of one state, in this case California, reach out to another state, in this case Florida, with concern about textbooks that kids here will be reading? So this is complicated, but it's important because textbooks are big, big business in this country. And what many textbook publishers oftentimes do is they make a national program. And that national program then is used, of course, in different states. And what happens is that there are a handful of states that really drive what those national programs look like. They're usually the biggest states, Florida, Texas, New York, and California. So what the governor is doing here is ensuring that these textbook publishers don't allow all of the sort of the the hubaloo about what textbooks are going to be going to be containing in Florida to, to be what we see in California textbooks. So he wants to ensure that textbook publishers will customize content, curriculum, and history in a manner that's more consistent with what California wants, as opposed to allowing Florida to drive or dictate what the program will look like not only for the rest of the country, but specifically for the state of California. If these publishers are making so much money, why can't they just make different textbooks for different states? Is it really that much more expensive to do that? They would tell you that it is because every state has its own standards. Every state has its own learning targets. Every state has its own assessment me- uh, mechanisms. Every state has its own history. So to make an entirely different program for an entirely different state, Uh, has significant costs associated with it. But I think that the governor is doing the right thing to hold textbook publishers accountable to say, listen, if you want to do business here in California, 
we need to make sure that you're not using a one size fits all approach and you're being specific to the very issues that we make sure we want to have here issues tied to race and ethnicity issues tied to lgbtq rights and histories uh, all the things that florida is omitting is essentially what california wants i'm curious did this problem exist during say the height of the civil rights movement in the 60s was that also an issue about what textbooks say in the south would say as opposed to textbooks in the north or the west and and did it lead to a similar kind of conflict or potential conflict not at all, because if you look back 50, 60 years ago, textbooks were pretty clear about they were going to give you one program. And that program was a pretty whitewashed attempt to tell history and tell the story of the United States and to document the or, or Florida or North Carolina. We want something different. And because there's so much money involved in textbook publishing companies, textbooks realized if they wanted to play, they had to ensure that they adhered to some of the wants some of the asks, some of the demands that states made, especially large states like California, where you have over 6 million students who are in schools, uh, the largest uh, number of students of any state uh, in the country. Is there an opportunity here uh, from a business standpoint for a uh, textbook publisher to uh, get into business and say, look, uh, forget Florida, forget Texas. We're going to make textbooks this way that will be acceptable to the big blue states like California. Would they be able to make it a money doing that? Absolutely. And I think that's why the governor's message is so critical here, because what he's signaling to other companies out there is that, listen, uh, the textbook publishing company has been largely dominated by a handful of companies. And I think the message that he's sending is, look, if you want to do business in California, give us a better product, give us a more inclusive product than what might be out there. And we can really make sure that that product is not only statewide, but it can be used, as you mentioned, in other blue states across the country as well. So this is an opportunity to really radically rethink the way in which textbook publishers engage with states across the country. Well, and, and in terms of rethinking the way they do it, uh, and from a cost-effectiveness point of view, because so much is online, including, you know, hard textbooks now making a transition, even in the grade schools, to online, couldn't they conceivably, at a much more reduced cost than an actual hard, you know, book, couldn't they, in theory, have one textbook that's online for Florida students and one for California, and it wouldn't cost them any more than just substituting a couple of graphs or deleting a couple of graphs from what the students read online? And, and, and you're spot on. And I think that's what ultimately is going to happen. I think that the big textbook publishers are going to realize that, listen, we cannot afford to lose out on California business. It's just too robust and it's too big. So therefore, there will be modifications, there will be transformations, there will be augmentations to ensure that those online formats reflect what is happening in Cal uh, in California. You already see this happening in, in many states across the country as it is now because of the state standards, especially taught in history and in social studies classrooms. So I'm a little bit you know, intrigued by why the governor raised this, because this has been an issue that's been happening for the latter part of 10 years where states are saying, listen, we don't want you to just give us, you know, Texas or Florida's curriculum with a few minor changes here or there. We want something very unique, specific and customized for California. But I do think that the textbook publishers will make those modifications to ensure uh, that Californians are happy and satisfied with the content that they have. All right, Tyrone Howard, thank you for joining us. Education professor and director of the UCLA Pritzker Center for Strengthening Children and Families. Still ahead, you may soon work for a menopause-friendly company. If you're wondering what that is, hang around. Right now, though, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott now says he is running for president, and he's got 
quite a bit of cash. With us now is Rena Shaw, Republican strategist based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. Hey there. Glad to be with you. So uh, despite all the money, uh, does he really have a shot? Because Donald Trump apparently does not think he's that much of a threat because his reaction to uh, his entry into the race is quite different than Governor Ron DeSantis' potential entry into the race. You know, when you look at Senator Tim Scott on his face, you see somebody that doesn't represent today's Republican Party entirely. You know, number one, he's a lone black Republican senator sitting in that body. And secondly, he's known to be really understated, really quiet in his conservatism. Uh, and I say that because obviously his policy stances speak for himself. He's very conservative, whether you look socially or fiscally. But when he's out there in the public light, he's not saying things that are very sensational. He's not looking to tie some sort of um, make a link to Donald Trump and really speak about his era in the presidency. He's really looking to distinguish himself on issues like economy, and even issues like abortion now, when he teased this presidential run, which is now official, he came out saying that he would be the most pro-life, anti-abortion president that we have ever seen were he to win the White House. And yet he has, a, I think, a war chest of some $22 million. Why does he have that much? You know, there are a lot of donors who get excited about the prospect of a candidate like him, youngish, under 50, um, from what I understand. And um, look, there's, well... Age is, is not the issue here. It's about stamina, too, and what he represents. He's coming from South Carolina, the South being a conservative stronghold. Uh, you know, he is really somebody that can challenge a lot of minds and, and perhaps even bring back that independent voter that the Republican Party needs so much in this era. Uh, some political pundits smarter than uh, me are saying that uh, Republicans embrace of uh these very strict anti-abortion policies are actually hurting them when it comes to mainstream elections and, and that they are losing seats because of that. If Tim Scott embraces that, is let's say that he does rise to the top of the for the Republican nomination, uh, is he going to lose the general election based on that? My sense has always been that this election in 2024 coming upon us, it may feel so far away, but it's going to be about the economy. As we know, historically speaking, these presidential elections are always about a referendum on the party in power. So who's occupying the White House and how can we criticize the job they've done? We as Americans unfairly uh, really tie the success of any presidency to the economy in the modern era. And unfortunately, there's just no empirical data to show that we have that link to make, that that's a correct link to make. We wrongly do that. But what I think we see here as 2020 showed us is that Anybody other than Trump has an advantage. Now, with Biden in the White House at the age of 80 and really looking at what he has seen to have done to the economy, many Republicans may be having buyer's remorse for having voted for Biden last time. It's that independent voter in the swing states that's going to be pivotal. So who's going to bring them in? And again, Tim Scott could have potentially done that had he not come out with this really, really loud abortion stance right prior to announcing this run. I think that was a bad strategic move on his part. He should stick to sticking about uh, he should stick to talking about the economy. Excuse me. Could we have a repeat of the last time when there were so many people on the Republican side the first time I'm talking about, uh, which really cleared the way for Donald Trump? to be the GOP candidate. Uh, I mean, you've got Tim Scott, you've got uh, DeSantis is expected. Uh, Mike Pence is still sitting on the fence, but is expected to also uh, join the race. Might you end up with so many that they will so fragment the Republican vote that Donald Trump once again becomes the, you know, the Republican Party candidate? 
In 2012, uh, I was part of what was a very famous autopsy on why Republicans lost. At that time, the Republican National Committee would listen to strategists and candidates. And, and though they would tell candidates to jump and candidates would say how high at that time, uh, we saw a real quick change. Uh, just a few years later, Donald Trump became not just the nominee, he started to dictate how politics were done in Washington. So now you, we really exist in this era of candidates telling the parties what to do. And uh, further evidence of that is by personalities, particularly on the right, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, why can't the party quit Marjorie Taylor Greene? It's because she stages incidents all the time that help her with fundraising. The fact that many of these sort of uh, bigger celebrity type figures on the right, and I'll, I'll just mention the right for now, uh, they are welcomed in the party ranks and uh, party officials don't know what to do with them because they really dictate what happens. They have followings. They're able to get small donations from these donors that at, at some point were not engaged. And so that's why you see the party not able to really even dictate who's going to be in the field this time around. Uh, one thing I would have advised and I did advise to party officials, Republican party officials, is that a crowded field would leave us with the most extreme voice. That was after 2016, because again, we got Donald Trump out of that pack. It's happening again because the party can't pump the brakes on it this time. They have no control. So as many candidates are going to jump in, they'll do it. And uh, look, a lot of them are doing it to really save their own legacy. Mm. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Rena Shaw is a Republican strategist based in Washington, D.C. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Workplaces over the last few years have been changing, making more and more accommodations for workers to keep them comfortable and happy. Some companies are now creating menopause-friendly workplace. Here to explain is Julie Bauke, President and Chief Career Strategist at the uh, Bauke Group. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Oh, not bad. Tell us what a menopause-friendly workplace oh. is. So this is something that is going on. It started in the U.K., and there have been these kind of progressive companies in which they have a lot of women employees who've said that they're having difficulty at work because of menopause symptoms. And so they are trying to be more open and accommodating and friendly, let's just say, to people's healthcare challenges and the things that we come up against at every age. And so it's starting to take hold in the US. In fact, New York is leading the way in saying, look, you know, we women are working longer. Boomers are staying. Women are a greater percentage of the workforce than ever before. And this shows no signs of stopping. And so if we want to attract and retain people, we have to make it easy for them to be productive at work. And so this is where the what's in it for the company comes in. Because if your people, if you've got a heavy female workforce and your people are saying, look, I am having a really hard time being as productive as I possibly can because of some of these late life stage things, that I'm going through, then the employers, what they're doing is employers are trying to find a way, how do you make this not an issue so our people could be fully engaged at work? Which symptoms uh, are we specifically talking about here and what accommodations are being made? Well, there's about 36 symptoms uh, that women experience during menopause. And the two that are most frequently mentioned are hot flashes and brain fog. And those are the things where it's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, having been through it myself, um, you know, you really you you feel like you're burning from the inside out, and then the brain fog is really around. Um, I can't be as productive as I need to be, and so therefore my my contribution could fall off. And so what some of these companies in the UK are doing is they're providing things like cooling rooms. They're opening up the conversation 
around to make it more comfortable for people to say what they need to their employers. Whereas, you know, in decades past, the line between work and your personal life was so firm that you would never let on that you were having any sort of trouble. We're in a much more transparent work world these days in a lot of ways. And this is just one of the new ones that's popping up. Okay, so now let me hit you with the male chauvinist uh, argument, which I'm sure you've heard, which goes along the lines of this. Uh, Women have been saying they want equal pay for equal work. Now they're asking to have accommodations to take care of things that are strictly things that affect women. Why should you get the same pay for doing, in effect, less work? Well, you know, women also have babies and there's maternity leave. And so, you know, now some, some men are getting paternity leave. And so I think the answer here is to not continue to play whack-a-mole and try to have something different for every issue that comes up. The solution here is comprehensive work um, healthcare policy that addresses wellness and provides counseling and resources for every stage of your life, whether you're a man or a woman. And I think that's when employers start to get like, ah, you know, we feel like they're bending backwards trying to accommodate everybody I think it's time to step back and say, what does our workforce need and what are they asking for? I've worked in workplaces where they were 80 to 90% female. That's a different vibe, a different set of needs than if you've got 80 to 90% men. And so employers, you know, they're trying to meet the needs of their particular workforce. And it's, you know, it, it's the workplace is changing so much that right now we're in the watching the sausage get made part. And it's getting really ugly. But because of the transparency, people talk about salaries now, and they never used to. So we're, the transparency is going away. And so there's that line between home and work is, is gone. And so everybody wants to feel like they're bringing their full selves to work and be able to talk about, look, I lost my, I lost my, I lost a parent. I'm having this challenge. I'm having a challenge with my child. And you have to not only have a comprehensive healthcare policy, but also a comprehensive time off policy that's not about, this is why so many companies have gone to like a time off bank instead of you having to fill out a vacation request form or a PTO form. So if you've got the support and the resources plus the ability for people to manage their their work and their life schedules while still holding them to the expectations that there's work to do and work to produce, that's how you're going to attract and retain the right people by giving them what they need and then standing back and let them be productive and get it done their way. If they don't, that's you know that's a totally different conversation. You know that's that's where you start to say, look, you, you can't meet the needs of this role or what we hired you for, and and then you you know you move in that direction. I want to go back to something you said very quickly. Uh, you talked about brain fog as one of the symptoms. Uh, I have lived my life in a perpetual state of brain fog. And the <laughs> yeah. only accommodations that have been afforded to me here at KNX is that they, they pair me up with co-hosts who are smart. And uh, that way I can hide my brain fog a little bit. Uh, but what accommodations do you make for somebody who's, who's suffering from what they call brain fog? Now, see, I heard at KNX they come and hit you up the side of the head with a two-by-four. <laughs> you heard that too, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So really, it's just a matter of let's say you're you're in a really you're going through a really tough spot. You might need, you know, to go, you know, take a walk around the building. You might need to take a half a day off out of your PTO bank. I mean, this is not you know, this should not or out of your sick pay um, or just maybe if you're having a hard time focusing in a meeting, maybe somebody else takes over. 
I think it's really important here. So because it can feel like all the responsibilities on the employer, but it isn't. So I, what I tell people is as an individual, you are responsible for making sure that you get the work done that you were hired to do and that you do it in an outstanding fashion. All right. Uh, Julie Balke, ask uh, for uh, what you need. I hate to cut you off, but we got to leave it there. Thank you so much. Uh, she's You're the welcome. president and chief uh, career strategist at the at the Balke Group. And to uh, deal with my brain fog, I'm going to go take a walk around the building. So are, are you sure, Rob, that you have brain fog and not, I don't know, industrial pollution? <laughs> industrial pollution <laughs> could be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now that marijuana is legal in New York, law enforcement's having a big problem busting people who drive while stoned. It's not just a New York problem. It's an issue California is dealing with, too. Here to explain why is Ambrosio Rodriguez, criminal defense attorney and former Riverside County prosecutor. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there's no, like, breathalyzer uh, that you can use for someone that uh, the police officer expects is driving uh, under the influence of too much marijuana. Correct. The The real problem is that alcohol and marijuana work in completely different ways in, in the system, in our body. And therefore, like the entire system that we have for detecting whether or not someone's driving under the influence of alcohol doesn't work with marijuana for two reasons. Marijuana affects the body in a different way. And detecting it requires a blood test. And so it's just a lot more complicated. And we're still trying to get our arms around this issue as a criminal justice system. Well, as we said at the outset, New York is apparently finding this to be a real problem. And uh, we took an unscientific poll uh, a few minutes ago here in the studio. And every one of us has known uh, and experienced uh, fellow drivers passing us with their windows down, perhaps. Uh, you know, and you can tell that they're either driving stone. You can smell that they're driving stone. Yeah. They look like they're yeah, driving stone. Yeah, like a break that hits you. Yeah. So so uh, what do police do? Uh, I mean, obviously, they can stop somebody if they think they're driving recklessly, but not everybody who is stoned or even, uh, you know, drunk necessarily drives in a fashion that is it is observable. So what does a cop do if they are pretty sure that somebody's or maybe they even smell it, but they can't test for it. Right. So they can't really prove it in a court of law, can they? Yes and no. If a police officer sees someone who is driving and smoking marijuana at the same time, they have probable cause to pull them over to begin an investigation. They can have the, the driver perform field sobriety tests to see whether or not they're impaired. The issue is not whether someone's intoxicated. The issue is whether or not someone is impaired. Then they can proceed with an investigation. If they think there's enough, they can arrest. They, will, they have to draw blood because there's only one chemical that they're looking for to determine whether or not there is marijuana that can affect them, which is called Delta-9. Look, if you are had too many drinks, your blood alcohol content is kind of is what it is. And blood alcohol content actually rises after you start drinking. Uh, with marijuana, the most amount of Delta-9 you will have in your system will be right after you smoke, and it begins to go down immediately thereafter. Alcohol works different. You'll, you don't feel it after your first drink. You feel it a little bit after, 20, 30 minutes later. And so the drawing of the blood and the process that it takes is just part of the problem 
uh, with people driving under the influence of marijuana, which is a real issue. All right. So you talked about the differences in how alcohol affects your body and how marijuana affects your body. Uh, is If you're doing a field sobriety test, is impairment different? Does the police officer see a different kind of impairment between alcohol and marijuana? Yes and no. Uh, you will have some, you might not have obviously slurred speech with marijuana, but you will have issues with balancing, uh, issues with focus. Um, there's the kind of the finger to nose test with your eyes closed and the ability to tell time by counting or estimated how long, you know, how fast 30 seconds happen. So issues of perception um, are something that happens with both alcohol and marijuana, and officers can test for that through the field sobriety test that they were trained with. Are there field tests in development that might help law enforcement be better able to pinpoint and prove that somebody is actually driving while they're really stoned? Yes, but that is there. Yes, but in order to get consensus, you need time and it's too early for us to have consensus. Right now, in terms of field sobriety tests, police officers are relying on the uh, tests that they were taught for alcohol. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Ambrosio Rodriguez, criminal defense attorney and former Riverside County prosecutor. So if you see uh, crazy drivers on the road doing dumb things in front of you, you can uh, probably assume that they're stoned, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, he was talking about test. I mean, can you if you close your eyes, can you touch the tip of your nose? I have difficulty with that. You do? Well, I did it just now. But I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I and I have terrible balance. Do you know where your nose is? Hang on. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> That's it for KDX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow.